Psalm 147 says, Praise the Lord, for it's good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. Indeed, it has been fitting to sing praises to the Lord. It's been good to be with you all. Let us continue in worship as we read from God's word. Today's passage is from Luke 2, verses 40 through 52. When following along in the Pew Bible, it's page 858. 858. Luke 2, verses 40 through 52. Let's read from God's word. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of God. Who amongst us as parents can't relate to this story at least a little bit? One time when Carter, my my third born, was 12... We were here, uh, and we were, we were going home for the day, and we were parked, where am I? We were parked out here to my left, and Carter said, oh, I, I forgot something in my locker. Okay, go in, get it out of your locker, and we'll drive around the building, and we'll pick you up on the other side. Carter ran in, started up the car, I'm driving, Joy's next to me, the other three kids are in the car. We drive around the building, just keep going. (laughs) Just kept going. Totally forgot to stop and pick him up. (laughs) We're almost out of buoy. We get a phone call from Eva Seawalk, who works at the school. Uh, Your son is here. (laughs) We did go back for him, in case you were wondering. So, we can all have a little compassion for Mary and Joseph. We're not here to judge them. We're not here to nitpick them. We're not here to rail against them as terrible parents. In fact, this is not a parenting passage, is it? It's, pretty, it's actually pretty culturally understandable that there might have been confusion amongst them coming back, 
you know, it's an it's a 80-mile journey from Jerusalem back to Nazareth. It's a four-day journey. And back then, the men would usually kind of all hang out traveling, and the women would kind of all hang out traveling. And Jesus at 12, he's in that awkward stage of life, isn't he? How many 12-year-olds in the room? Where are my 12-year-olds? Any 12s? There's no 12. We got one 12. We got a couple 12s. My 12s are right up front. All right. Okay. God bless you guys. 12 is hard. 12 is hard. So Jesus, no, no different. Jesus is in that awkward stage and, and not just, you know, physically, you know, puberty, all of that, but socially, 12 is sort of like, are you, a, are, are you still a child hanging out with the women folk or are you a man hanging out with the men? And so, you know, Mary probably thought, okay, he's hanging out with the men. And Joseph probably thought, oh, he's hanging out with the, with the women. And then they stop at the rest stop and realize, we're missing a kid. <laughs> we're missing a kid. And they hustle back to Jerusalem, and it takes them a couple days to find him. Who amongst us can't feel their panic, their anxiety. Jesus, why did you put us through this? They ask him. But listen, again, this isn't about being a parent. This passage isn't here to teach us how to be parents. It's here to teach us how to be sons, how to be a son. That's the name of our, that's the title of our sermon this morning, how to be a son. We'll look at understanding who Jesus is, the son of God, then we'll look at understanding who we are, sons of God, and then we'll ask the question, how can we be a son of God? First of all, let's understand who Jesus is, the son of God, the son of God. The climax, the, 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 the verse, the important verse is verse 49. Didn't you know that I must be in my Father's house? Didn't you know that I must be in my Father's house? It's a little tricky because in the original language, in Greek, the word house isn't actually there. So it reads something like this. Jesus looks at them and says, didn't you know I must be in my Father's? Or didn't you know I must be with my father? Or didn't you know I must be about my father's? Or didn't you know I must, must be a... So you can, tra you can translate it any of those ways. What he's saying is, hey, mom and dad, didn't you know I had to be all about my father? Don't you know I exist for my father? Don't you know I have to do what my father's asking me to do? And at 12 years old, that would have made a lot of sense. At 13, he will become a son of the commandment. Today we call it bar mitzvah, right? They didn't do bar mitzvahs yet at this time. That's coming later. But they did go through this process of, of growing up and being considered a son of the commandment, but also socially at around 12, 13 years old, you would start to learn literally your father's business. If, if Jesus' dad, Joseph is a stonemason or a construction worker of some sort, then there's, there's a 99% chance that that's what Jesus is going to learn how to do. He's going to learn His Father's business. 
Jesus is elevating this and saying, I need to know my heavenly Father's business. I'm 12 now. You should have assumed it was time for me to start learning the family business. This passage shows us that at 12 years old, Jesus had an awareness already of who He is and what His mission is. He knows that He is the Son of God, and He knows that He's he's beginning to understand His mission. That's why Luke sandwiches this story with these two statements about how Jesus is growing and being filled with wisdom, and He has the favor of God. He's growing in wisdom and favor. What What that translates to is He's growing in His understanding of His identity. Only 14 times in the Old Testament is God called Father. 14 in the whole Old Testament. He'll be called Father more times in Luke than that. Nobody in the Old Testament, no Old Testament saint ever calls God Father. None of them. In fact, chronologically, as far as we can tell, this is the first time a person said, God is my Father. Didn't you know I had to be about my Father's business? I had to be in my Father's house? This is the first time. In the Old Testament, the idea of sonship is there. Adam is presented as the Son of God. Luke, will, Luke 3, he'll call Adam that. Adam is created in the image of God. The idea there is sonship. He's, the, he's created as the Son of God. He's created as a Son of God in the image of God. But as we know, Adam sinned. He rebelled against his father, God. Like the prodigal son story in this gospel, Adam is like that son who said, I want to do it my way. I want to have have my own knowledge. Give me my inheritance. I don't care if you're here or not. I don't care if you're alive or dead. I'm out of here. And Adam rebelled. And so then God shifted from Adam, and He called Israel His son, the whole nation of Israel. We saw that in Exodus. In Exodus 4, God said, Israel is my son. Pharaoh What was Pharaoh doing? Pharaoh was destroying, literally killing the Israelite baby boys. He was killing God's son. And so God redeemed His son, Israel, out of Egypt. Hosea, the prophet, says, out of Egypt I have called my son. God talking. So now Adam Adam was God's son, but failed Israel, God's son. And then even more specifically, years later, God will make a covenant with King David, and He'll say, David, now you are my son. David, you are my son. Psalm 2, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. God speaking to King David. Jesus will be called God's son all throughout the Gospels. At the Annunciation, Gabriel said to Mary, your son will be the son of the Most High. At his baptism, Jesus came up out of the water and and God, the clouds opened and God said, this is my beloved son who pleases me. At the transfiguration, 
Jesus began to glow, and the heavens opened again, and God said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. God will call Jesus his son. Jesus will call God his father countless times. Read the Gospel of John. It's, it's literally on every page where Jesus says, my father, my father, my father, my father, my father, my father, right? But Jesus isn't just another in a long line of sons of God like Adam or Israel or David. Jesus is the unique divine Son of God. Why? Because Jesus isn't just the Son of God. Jesus is God the Son. God the Son. John chapter 1 explains this to us. In John 1, the Apostle John says, the Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory glory as of the only Son from the Father. Earlier in that chapter, he said, the Word was in the beginning with God, and the Word was God. Here, he stresses that the Word is the Son of God because He is the only Son from the Father. The only Son from the Father. The Greek word is monogenes, which we, um, we've translated as only begotten, only begotten. The King James Version, New King James Version will say he's the only begotten son. You see, Jesus has always been, listen to me, pay attention, Jesus has always been God the Son. He is eternally the Son. He did not become the Son at the Incarnation. He did not become the Son at Christmas time. He's always been the Son. The Father has always been the Father. The Son has always been the Son. The Son has always come out of the Father. He has, he has put your thinking caps on, theology 101. He has eternally begotten of the Father or be eternally generated out of the Father. Does Jesus have a beginning? No. No beginning, eternally begotten, eternally the only Son of God. So when Jesus calls himself Son of God or calls God his Father, everybody around him understands that, th that he's claiming equality with the Father. This is evident in John 5, 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Remember, nobody in the Old Testament ever called God father. Not Abraham, not Moses, not David. And then along comes Jesus, and he starts spouting, my father, my father, my father, my father. And they said, oh, he's claiming to be equal with God. And they want to kill him, don't they? And they do kill him. That's the cross. That's, how Je that's why Jesus died on the cross, for blasphemy. So at the incarnation, through the virgin birth, God the Son became Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man. At the incarnation, through the virgin birth, 
God the Son, eternal, God the Son, always the Son, He became the Son of God and the Son of Man. That's how we can explain this text. How, how is Jesus, who's God, learning anything? Because He's 100% God and He's 100% human at the same time. He's 100% God and 100% human at the same time. So, the wisdom, capital W, Jesus is the wisdom of God, but He had to grow in wisdom. Jesus is the grace of God, but He had to grow in grace. Jesus is the omniscient God, but He had to sit and learn from teachers. Jesus created Mary and Joseph, but He had to submit to them. Why? Because He's both God and human. Look at how Hebrews says it to us, Hebrews 5. Although He was a son, talking about Jesus, He learned obedience through what He suffered. Well, how does God learn anything? Well, because He was also human. So, as a human, He had to learn. He had to learn obedience through what He suffered. This story in Luke is one of the stories where we see Jesus being, being able to learn obedience. He's learning how to submit His life to the Father, to the Scriptures, and then to His parents. Verse 9, and being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. These can be confusing. This can be confusing. How, how, how was Jesus made perfect? If He's God, isn't He already perfect? Yes, but remember, He's also human. He's 100% human, so He also has to be made perfect. In other words, He has to be made full, complete. He has to be able to be our substitute by first fulfilling the law by being obedient, fully obedient to God. Pastor Mark talked about that last week. That's why it was so important for his parents to take him to the temple. They're doing it again in this passage, aren't they? Jesus didn't miss a Passover. They didn't slack off. They didn't say, oh, we'll catch it next year. They went. Why? Because on crucifixion day, Jesus has to be able to stand up and say, I have never messed up. I never skipped. <clears throat> I didn't take a day off. Praise God. <laughs> Amen? Where would we be? In theology, we call this the hypostatic union, that Jesus has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature in one person. One person. There's no division in Him. There's no separation, no confusion. Everything Jesus did, even at 12, everything Jesus did, He did completely as God and as a person. Everything. Everything Jesus did, He was doing both as God and as a person. So, if you're wondering, did Jesus sin in this passage? When He stayed in Jerusalem while His parents went home, and they show up and they chastise him, Jesus, what are you doing? What have you done to us? And the question is, did Jesus sin? 
No, because God can't sin. Everything Jesus did, He did as both God and person. So, everything Jesus did, He did perfectly. Again, praise God. Praise God. Now, of course, this is baffling to us. This is baffling. How can a person have two natures in, in one person? That's impossible. We can't explain this. Listen, some of you think that if something can't be explained, it can't be true. I'll believe in God when I see the proof for God. You can't prove God. You can't prove God. But listen, there are some things that we can't explain and we can't prove, but by those same things, we can explain everything else. And that's what makes it true. Not that I can explain it or that I can prove it, that, but by, that by it, I can explain everything else. Take, for example, your consciousness. I know we're getting deep. Stay with me. Your consciousness. We can, I, we, you can't prove that you're conscious right now. I remember when I was a kid, I get so mad at my older brother, Bruce. Anytime I try to have, he's a few years older than me, six years older than me. Anytime I try to have like a serious conversation with him about faith or religion or whatever, he would always say, you know, I just think we're all brains in jars. None of this is real. He would say that every time. We're all just brains in jars and none of this is real. I was like, do you really believe that? Well, you can't prove, you can't prove that we're not. So frustrating. Listen, you can't prove that you're conscious right now. You can't prove memory. You can't prove the past. You can't prove that the past happened. You can't prove love. Scientifically, we can't explain energy. We can't explain where it came from. We can't explain gravity. These things are, are unexplainable. But by them, we understand everything else, don't we? By these things, we understand everything else. The dual nature of Jesus is unexplainable, but by it, we can explain everything else about what it means to be a human. I know what it means to be a human by looking at Jesus in his dual nature. Why am I here? Why am I alive? What is the meaning of life? <laughs> Look at Jesus. Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He's, he's making a statement about the meaning of life, isn't he? Didn't you know that this is why I exist? What is love? What does it mean to love? What does it mean to be alive? Where are we headed? Why does this world not satisfy us? Why do we suffer? Why do we worship? How will God save the world? How will we be, ever be reconciled to God? How can we participate in the divine nature? The dual nature of Jesus answers all of those questions. All of life's biggest questions are ultimately answered by Christ alone. If you don't make it to Him, your, your answers are falling short. I promise you, your answers are falling short. You're just left with guesses. 
and you're just left with, well, it can't be proven, so I'm not going to believe it. Well, that's a foolish way to live. None of you live, none of you live based on only what you can prove. Did you get in your car? Did you drive in traffic today? Have you ever been on an airplane? You can't prove that that plane's going to take off and land safely. You can't prove that. You can't prove that the person you live with isn't going to kill you. Sorry, that got dark. <laughs> you can't prove. You can't, we can't prove anything. We can't prove anything. What do we do? We live our lives. <laughs> we live our lives with a whole lot of faith, don't we? With a whole lot of faith. If you're waiting for what you can prove, you're going to be waiting a long time and you're going to live a very meaningless life, a very meaningless life. Consider Christ. Just consider Him. For Jesus and His family, there's a big question here, the Passover question. They walked to Jerusalem four days Young Jesus, 12 years old, he's 12 now, he's 12. They get into the city, it's swollen with people, it's loud, it's noisy, it probably smells bad. They buy their lamb. Jesus goes with Joseph. Now that he's 12, we go up to the priest and we watch that priest kill that lamb, drain the blood, offer the sacrifices, praise to God. And then what do we do? We take that lamb that was sacrificed and we take it back home. We fix it up because tonight is Passover. Tonight is Passover. So we got our lamb and we got our bread and we got our wine. And Jesus will ask dad the Passover question. Abba, what makes this night different from every other night? And, and Abba will say, because this is the night that God redeemed His people out of Egypt. And then Jesus, being the 12-year-old that He is, says, so what? Who cares? We're still under Rome. Nothing's changed. Life is still a desire. No, Jesus didn't do that, did He? <laughs> but probably all the other 12-year-olds did. There's got to be more. There's got to be more to this story. There's got to be more to Passover than just remembering something that happened thousands of years earlier. What makes this night different from every other night? Well, this is the night God rescued us out of Egypt. And we're it's still a life is still a disaster. Life is still hard. The Romans might be worse than the Egyptians, for goodness sake. We're not free. There's no, there's no king. There's no peace. And Jesus understands this. And so He's able to see something bigger to pass over, something future. And so when they find Him in the temple still, he had been in the temple all week. He's been in the temple all week. He watched that lamb get slain. I'm, I'm positive. He watched it, and he knew. He knew something. 
And he sat in that temple. And when his mom and dad came in and they said, Jesus, what are you doing? It's time to go home. Why are you still here? It's time to go back to our normal everyday lives. It's time to just live our life in Nazareth. And Jesus' response is this. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? That's called the divine must, the divine necessity. In Luke 4, Jesus will say, I must preach the good news. In Luke 9 and 17, he'll say, the Son of Man must suffer many things. In chapter 22, Jesus will say, the Scripture must be fulfilled in me. In chapter 24, he'll say, the Son of Man must be delivered to be crucified. Must. Mom and Dad, didn't you know that I must be in my Father's house Jesus could see Passover as more than just something in the past, something we do because we're pious, something we do, it said in the text, because it was their custom. It was their custom to go. When your children ask you, mom and dad, why do we go to church? What's your answer to that? How do you answer that question? Mom and dad, why do we go to church? Well, it's it's what good Christians do okay, (laughs) because I said so. Worst answer ever. (laughs) Look, are are you able to connect everything you do to the big story of God's redemption? Why do, why are we doing this? Jesus, why are you still here? Why aren't you going home? Why are you hanging out in the temple? Because I must do my Father's will. I must do it. And what is the Father's will? To bring many sons to glory. Hebrews 2, verse 10, for it was fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. God's mission, God's plan, God's goal is to have a full family, (laughs) many sons to glory. So number two, let's understand who we are meant to be in Christ, sons of God. Again, Jesus is the first person in the Bible to call God his father. Think about it. Think about the status that he's claiming. I am the son of God. Nobody else is the son of God. I don't care what the emperor says. I don't care what Pharaoh said. I am the true Son of God, and I am the one and only Son of God. I am monogenes. I am the only begotten, the only eternal, the only generated. And if if he was like us, he would grab onto that and clench it so tight. This is my status. This is my identity. But no, that's not what Jesus does. He offers to share sonship with all of us. That's crazy. That's crazy. And so in Luke 6, Jesus will say to the disciples, be merciful as your Father is merciful. When you pray, Luke 11, when you pray, say, Father who art in heaven. Luke 11, don't you know your heavenly Father wants to give you the Holy Spirit? Luke 12, your Father knows everything you need. Luke 15, Jesus tells a parable parable about a father who's waiting for his son to come home. Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of God, and I'm going to share that with all of you. 
Every single one of you can say what nobody in the Old Testament ever said, God is my Father. God is my Father. This is a revolutionary truth. I would submit to you that no other faith, no other religion sets up as the primary relationship between the Creator and the created, between the, the deity and the worshiper, the relationship of father-child. Allah is not their dad. He's just not. They don't even know that He loves them. In antiquity especially, in antiquity especially, the emperor was the son of God. Augustus was the son of God. It said it on the coin. Julius, Caesar, he's, the, he's God. I am his adopted son. Augustus is his adopted son. I am now the son of God. I am a God. He wasn't sharing that with anybody else. He wasn't going around saying, all of you plebes can be sons of God too. You peasants, you can be sons of God. No. He said, worship me, fall at your feet, do everything I say, or I'll kill you. That was, that, to, to them, that was their God. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, I'm the son of God who's willing to make you my brothers and sisters. Join the family. And it's open to anyone. John 1. He came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Children of God. Listen, this is the most awesome truth. This is, this is the most incredible truth I can present to you this morning, that you can be the child of God today. When we receive Christ, we become children of God, restored to God, welcomed by God, restored to the human family, seated at His table, living in His mansion, receiving all of His good gifts, and sharing everything with our big brother Jesus. That's what He's offering to us. Notice the word receive, but to all who did receive Him. It's not a paycheck. It's a gift. It's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. There's no prerequisites. There's no performance. There's no grading, no scoring. Jesus is saying, receive me. I'm holding it out. Just take it. Take my life. Take it. This isn't just intellectual assent, though. This isn't just yeah, I believe in Jesus. He was a good guy. No, to receive Jesus is to welcome Him into your life, to accept Him and place all of your trust upon Him, transfer all of your trust to Him, so that on judgment day, when God says, Brady, why should I let you into heaven? My only answer is because I received the life of Jesus. Because if I try to spout out all the good things I did, all the amazing things I did, all the wonderful things I did, I mean, ask my wife. She just, she's laughing right now. <laughs> she's literally up here laughing. <laughs> Guys, the standard's perfection. The standard's perfection. 
Are you perfect? Are you perfect? No. Okay. Then you need to receive. Notice the wideness and the narrowness of John 1.12. Christianity is the most wide open religion in the world to all who receive Him. No limit, no, nobody, nobody, the door is closed to nobody. Rich, poor, male, female, black, white, brown, doesn't matter, social status, educational status, all may receive Christ. The gospel is for everyone, but it's also narrow. It's also the most narrow faith in the world because you have to receive Him. Who's the Him? Jesus. You have to receive Him, Jesus. Jesus doesn't say no to anybody, but you have to say yes to Him. How do we receive Him? By faith, by believing, who believed in His name, believed in His identity, His person, His work, everything that He did for us, His perfect life, and His sacrificial death. Notice the contrast Verse 11, there are some who do not receive him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. We could, we could say he came into his own people, the Jews, but we can even expand that. And I think John has in mind, he came into humanity. He came into hu humanity and some did not receive him, but to all who did receive him. Listen, listen to me. You have to make a choice. You have to make a choice. The choice is before you right now. I set before you right now life or death. Will you reject him or will you receive him? Right now. There's no better time than right now to make that choice if you have not already made that choice. If you have received him, then what are you? Child of God. Child of God. You have the spirit of Christ in you. Galatians says the spirit of sonship, crying, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son. So number three, how do we be a son? How do we be a son? What can we learn from 12-year-old Jesus? What example do we see here? Number one, first of all, embrace your identity as a child of God. That's what Jesus is doing. Who are you? If I, if I, if I asked you, who are you? Like at the core of your being, who are you? What is your foundational identity? Can you say, the very core of my being is that I am a child of God? I am a son of God. I'm not the son of God. <laughs> I'm not Jesus. I'm not divine. I'm not God the son, that's for sure. And I'm not the son of God, but I am a son of God. I am a child of God. Notice that this is where Jesus is at 12 years old. At 12 years old, he knows who he is. I am the son of God. God is my father. 
Abba, I belong to you. Say it with me. Abba, I belong to you. One more time. Abba, I belong to you. Guys, that's your, that's your wake-up prayer and your bedtime prayer right there. You wake up, Abba, I belong to you. Let that kick off your day every day. I belong to my dad. Let that be your foundational identity. Then, how do we, how do we be a son? We search for Jesus in the temple. Search for Jesus in the temple, the church. Why do you go to church? Because it was the custom of the day. That's right? Mary and Joseph went because it was the custom, as was their custom. I'm not knocking it. Customs are good. But they were shocked to find Jesus in the temple. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? Some of you came to church this morning having no idea that you might find Jesus here. You came for your friends. You came to show off your new dress or your new tie. You came because grandma will yell at you if you don't. You, you came because, this, again, this is what good Christians do. In fact, going to church for some of you is a way to keep Jesus off your back, right? You're not here to find Jesus. You're here to avoid Jesus. What if you came to church actually expecting to find Jesus there? Why do you sing the songs? Why do you listen to the sermon? Why do you pray the prayers? Do you pray the prayers? Or are you thinking about the big game? Or what you still need to buy for the big game? Why, why be in community? There's a beautiful picture of a small group happening in this passage. Mary and Joseph go in the temple, and what do they see? They see a bunch of people sitting in a circle with Jesus in the middle. I call that small group. <laughs> and it says that they're just all asking questions. Jesus is asking and listening, and they're just talking. Man, that's gorgeous, isn't it? Listen, the more you avoid the life of the church, the more you're avoiding Jesus. Well, me and Jesus, we can do it together alone. Me and Jesus. It's me and Jesus together. I like Jesus, but not the church. Come on. That's played out. It doesn't work. The church is the body of Jesus. Okay? The church is the bride of Jesus. The church is the brother of Jesus. You can't, you can't, you can't separate the two. You just can't. Number three, keep learning obedience through submission. How's this going? Are you learning obedience through submission? Are you, is your Christian walk characterized more by submission than it is by knowledge, let's say? Sure, you know the Bible. You've been going to grace forever, and you know the Bible but are you more submissive now than you were when you started out as a Christian? Or are you more argumentative, more complainy, more um, disingenuous? 
uh, divisive. What characterizes you? Jesus knew who he was. I am the son of the father. And he submitted. He submitted in three ways to the father, to the temple authorities, to his parents. We might say it this way, to God, to the church, to the family. What about you? Are you growing in your obedient submission to God, to the community, church community, and in your family? And then finally, trust your Savior Jesus. Okay, those first three things, understanding your identity, search for Jesus in the church, be submissive. Let's be honest, you're going to blow it on all of those. You're going to blow it. You're going to get them wrong. You're going to forget who you are. You're going to quit on the church. And you're going to become selfish at times. You're going to want your own way at times, prideful. This is why we must always, always, always trust Jesus as our Savior. He's not just our example. Twelve-year-old Jesus is not just our example. Twelve-year-old Jesus is our Savior. Verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. That's not a throwaway verse. If, if it was, this is when Jesus came into his own and he realized he didn't need his parents anymore. And he didn't need the authority of the family or the church. And so he went back to Nazareth and he became a rogue preacher who did whatever he wanted. If it said that, then we're all going to hell. If it says that he obeys in all things, what's he doing? He's obeying the law of God and being submissive to his parents. He is obeying the law of God. And that's the substitute, the Savior that we all need. We need a Savior who has obeyed. Jesus lived a life we could never live. He died for all of our rebellious ways. Why? So that He could pursue us with all of the love of the Father until we are home with Him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, perfect Son, sharer of your life, giver giver of your status, giver of your place. For any who have not received it, may today be the day that they would just humble themselves and receive. And for those of us who have received it, who are sons of God, children of God, daughters of God, God, I pray today, may we find joy in submission, joy in obedience, joy in being about your mission. mostly joy in knowing that you've saved us. Keep changing us. May we too, like Jesus, grow in wisdom and in favor with God and man. We pray in his name. Amen.